Welcome to History Speaks from the Montour County Historical Society. My name is Terry Diener, a member of the Board of Directors. Before we begin today's podcast, let me remind you that our speaker series continues through the summer months at the Boyd House Museum in Danville. On July 17th, Linda Soans of the Columbia Montour Visitors Bureau will discuss the covered bridges of Columbia and Montour counties. The program begins at 7 p.m., doors open at 6.30, admission is $5. Each Sunday, the Montgomery and Boyd House Museums are open to the public from 2 until 4. There is one admission price of $5 for those who are not members of the Historical Society. Students through grade 12 and society members are admitted free of charge. On July 4th of 1860, a group of men from Montour County pulled off one of the biggest hoaxes in Pennsylvania history, if not possibly one of the best in the history of the U.S. It's become known as the Japanese Embassy Hoax. In order to set the stage for what happened that day in Danville, we need to lay some groundwork as to why a delegation of the true Japanese Embassy was visiting the U.S. at that time. Commodore Perry had only opened Japan in 1854, signing a treaty of commerce and friendship with the shogun of that country. A fire in Japan had burned one copy of the treaty several years later, so that in 1860 the Japanese government decided to send an embassy to the U.S. to sign another copy of the document. Traveling aboard a U.S. naval vessel, the group first landed in San Francisco and then sailed around Cape Horn to Hampton Roads, Virginia. Disembarking, the ambassadors dressed in their native costumes visited Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Philadelphia, and New York. Because the U.S. was very anxious to establish friendly relations to this newest member of the international community of nations, the reception prepared for the Japanese visitors was unusually large and designed to show the mutual admiration of the two peoples. The people of the U.S. were curious about the Japanese embassy representatives and the delegation from Japan reciprocated that interest. On July 1st of 1860, the visiting dignitaries were scheduled to set sail from New York back to Japan. In Danville, preparations had been made for the annual celebration of July 4th. The Honorable William D. Kelly, congressman from Philadelphia, was scheduled to be the main speaker. Kelly, known as Pig Iron Kelly, for his advocacy of high tariffs on that commodity, was well-liked in Danville for that reason. It's not quite clear how the seed of the idea originated to provide Danville with a visit by the Japanese delegation. It is clear, however, where the idea started. In those days, William W. Hayes was the proprietor of Dr. Paul's Drugstore, which became the headquarters for the Great Embassy Conspiracy. Probably the group of young men which made their headquarters in the drugstore were enthusiastic about the visit by the embassy to the U.S., they were in close contact with the news of the day and doubtless were more curious than most about the strange visitors. At any rate, the idea of having a bogus embassy visit to Danville on July 4th was hatched several weeks before the event. The telegraph office at that time in Danville was located above Greer's old drugstore. When news came down the line, George Gearhart, the telegraph operator, posted the news on a pole in front of the store. When the news was of unusual importance, a small U.S. flag was hung on the board. Apparently, some of the young men of the town saw a posted article about the first-ever visit to the United States by the Japanese embassy and the grand receptions that they were receiving in different cities, which they visited. Someone in that group suggested having a bogus Japanese reception. The idea was adopted at once, and the next day, 33 gentlemen pledged to secrecy and agreed to take part in the performance. Frequent meetings were held to make plans and settle details. Businessman Peter Balti Jr. had some sewing machines in his store. 
which were moved to the unused third floor of his building. Joseph Doran, the leading tailor in town, designed and cut the garments for the bogus ambassadors, while the conspirators worked at sewing them, many times working long after midnight. The costumes were to include full trousers and a loose blouse. Meanwhile, Robert Adams, after a lengthy correspondence with contacts in Philadelphia, secured realistic oriental masks. Fabric was sewn to them and a hole cut in the top through which a lock of hair could be pulled. Colonel Samuel Strawbridge was a committee of one to make wooden swords for the embassy. The wooden weapons were decorated in the manner of Japanese scabbards and from a distance were extremely realistic. The treaty box in which the Japanese carried their precious copy of the treaty was decorated. The 30-inch box was shaped like a dog kennel. Plans were made with the Catawissa Railroad to stop and pick up passengers in front of Mr. Seckler's house about one and a half miles east of the Danville Depot. Citizens who owned fine carriages were asked to have them sent to the Danville Train Depot to bring the strangers to town. The Chief Burgess consented to receive the embassy with a speech of welcome and offer the hospitality of the town. To the dismay of the conspirators, with all of the preparations nearly complete, the news came that the Japanese embassy had set sail from New York. But anyone who thought a trifle like that could stop the hoax reckoned without the ingenuity of the Danville conspirators and the local telegraph. I. X. Greer sent a message from the railroad telegraph office to the town office where George Gerhardt was the operator. He was in on the conspiracy. Gerhardt posted the message, dated New York, which told them that the embassy ship was returning to this country to make a visit to Niagara Falls because the ship needed repairs. A second message appeared two hours later outlining plans that the embassy would travel to Easton and make its way to Danville in order to inspect the local ironworks. As the message was posted, the conspirators circulated throughout the crowd, stirring up enthusiasm and agitating for a big reception for the visitors in Danville. Simon P. Case hurried to the owner of the ironworks, Thomas Beaver, suggesting that perhaps some of the men could be persuaded to give up their holiday and run the works on July 4th so that the Japanese could see the plant in operation. That, however, did not happen. Although a few residents were suspicious, so well had the hoax been contrived that most persons believed the embassy was indeed coming to town. On midnight of July 3rd, a party drove out to the Seckler farm with boxes and trunks containing the disguises for the members of the conspiracy who were to pose as the embassy delegation. The 4th of July dawned bright and clear. The firemen's parade was held in the morning, and then the patriotic exercises were held in the square between the old courthouse and the Friendship Fire Company, which was located on the alley corner of Market Street. While the attention of most townspeople was riveted on the parade and the exercises, the conspirators slipped out of town, all taking different routes to the farm where they put on their disguises. Once again, a surprise telegraph was sent advising Danville that the train bearing the embassy was on its way to Danville. Dr. Robert Symington of Danville, who later distinguished himself during the Civil War, represented the naval commodore in the fake Japanese contingent. He did not wear a mask, but his hair was closely cut and dressed in a naval uniform with a fake mustache. He was so well disguised that even his wife didn't recognize him. An interpreter who spoke German, not English, was played by Charles Cook. Colonel Samuel Strawbridge was the artist of the party. When the train arrived at the Danville Depot, a crowd of a thousand people was waiting to see the Japanese visitors. The delegation settled into the waiting carriages and headed to the courthouse and their reception. Of course, they could not speak, since they were not to know any English. 
but it was hard to refrain from doing so. Arriving at the reviewing stand, the visitors were met by the chief burgess of the town and the town council. During the entire performance, Congressman Kelly was an interested and amused spectator. The speeches from the Danville officials were repeated in a mixture of Japanese and Dutch by Charles Cook, editor of the Danville Democrat newspaper. Dr. Yeomans responded to the address in a gibberish of Latin, Greek, and Indian. The locals roundly applauded. At the end of the ceremonies, the visitors were escorted to the Montour House, located at Mill and Market Streets. Finally on their own, the group rushed to the attic of the hotel, quickly changing into their regular clothes, and slipped out the back door, where they mingled with the crowd waiting for the Japanese to reappear. When the realization came that it was all a hoax and it spread through town, the young man who had perpetrated the entire conspiracy seemed as disappointed as the rest and joined in denouncing it. The group of gentlemen who had taken part kept the secret, and many of their names were never known. Some of the most prominent citizens of the town who took part were Dr. George Yeomans, Peter Balti Jr., Dr. Robert Symington, Colonel Samuel Strawbridge, Charles Cook, W.W. W. Hayes, I.X. Greer, Robert Adams, and John and Samuel Hibbler. Just consider even 160 years ago, people were drawn in to fake news stories. That's this week's edition of History Speaks from the Montour County Historical Society. All of the podcasts can be found on the Society's homepage. And again, a reminder that on July 17th, Linda Soans of the Columbia Montour Visitors Bureau will discuss the covered bridges of Columbia and Montour counties during our speaker series that Wednesday evening. The program begins at 7 p.m., doors open at 6.30, admission is $5. And I close the podcast today with this quote, Don't believe everything you see, even salt looks like sugar. <laughs>